kids can have all sorts of manifestations of poor mental health. For some kids, it's stock standard anxiety, depression, low mood, not wanting to get out of bed, not wanting to go to school, having no energy for things that they normally have energy for. But for some kids, they actually manifest their mental health problems with the physical symptoms. You get these kids who come in with tummy pain is probably the most common that we get. And it's so heartbreaking because you talk to them about, is this physical symptom something that we need to be worried about? Because is it an appendicitis? Is it diarrhea? That kind of thing. And then when you find out that it's none of those things and you can ask a little bit further about what's going on in the whānau. Sometimes there's like a divorce happening or bullying. My heart goes out to you seeing that. And for me, I can just imagine that happening too because with my little ones in early childhood, I can see sometimes they'll be off and then you find out something's happening at home. Kia ora koutou and welcome to Revolving Door Syndrome. I'm Dr Nina Sue, your friendly neighbourhood paediatric and emergency doctor. My day job is helping sick kids get better. But lately, I felt like I'm pushing a revolving door round and round in circles. I patch these kids up, send them back to the environment that made them sick in the first place, and they come right back through those hospital doors again. Together with my partner, Connor, we've created this podcast to deep dive into the reasons for our broken systems and perhaps find some real solutions. This podcast was brought to you by Medworld and made an association with the School of Medicine, University of Auckland. So welcome to the podcast, Kiri Danielle. So Thank you're you. our first Māori Environmental Commissioner. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Ngā mahi nui kia koe. <laughs> Thank you. So I really want to hear about your past because I think it's really interesting because you didn't obviously just get this role out of nowhere. Quite a while ago, you were an early education teacher. I was, and I followed my children into that. I have three children. They're all a lot bigger now. But when I was a young mum, I was, I just, I've wanted to be a mum forever, mm. a little girl with baby dolls. And so when I had my children, I didn't want to give them up, but I wanted to be able to work and be able to be a mum at the same time. And I was actually in an early childhood centre with my daughter. And I was the mum that always stayed longer and played with the other kids. And a teacher came up to me, a beautiful teacher who I've seen many times since. And she said to me, you know what, Kitty, you should think about being a teacher. Why don't you be a teacher? Then when my boy went to early childhood, I just thought, yeah, let's just do it. I got a little part-time job in the centre where I enrolled him. And I decided to study because I really did enjoy it. I can really see myself going in there every other day I have free. It wouldn't be a waste of my time to go in and just spend it with the little kids. In a selfish way, they do something really beautiful for me too. There's this TV show that I've watched. It's called Old People's Home for Four-Year-Olds. Have you seen it? <laughs> no, but now I have oh, to. Oh, <laughs> it's so good. It was a, it's a reality TV show, right? It's an experiment. And it was done in Australia like pre-pandemic where they just had a bunch of four-year-olds and they brought them to a retirement village. People who just lived in independent homes, people who lived in the rest home, that kind of thing. And just had the little kids play with the oldies and then they measured things like the childhood development for the kids, spending time with the oldies in terms of language and social development. But then also how the oldies, like how they were with their own memory and movement and all that. And I'm like, oh, such a beautiful thing if we could combine oh, <laughs> more yeah. of like the lilies with the oldies. Oh, yeah, I'm all for that. I read about komatua or koeke, Māori elders, that they have a longer lifespan if they are connected with their marae, which is essentially the extended family. And I would absolutely say that they bring this wonderful energy to life. It's an industry that is undervalued. The brain development that happens in those first three years, the emotional development that happens. All of that, I'm talking to the expert, you're the expert in that, <laughs> but early childhood teachers, if they have a degree or diploma, they've actually studied that early human development and the early brain development. So we're not just glorified babysitters. 
and the trajectory that you can put a child on if they're in a good quality early childhood centre having great interactions with good high quality staff the environment is set up in a stimulating inviting safe way those children are just going to be leaps and bounds ahead when they get to school and then they're going to stay on that trajectory. It's just giving them the most wonderful foundation. So I personally, with my teaching hat on, would love to see more funding going into early childhood. And I think and if we're bringing it back to the kaupapa of our corridor with a revolving door, there's a little doorstop right there, is get children into really good quality, good quality early childhood centres, because there are some horrific ones as well. And those ones are the ones that will come up for review. They won't get their aero tick, teachers in the paper. And the faster we shut them down, the better. But also, I do trust the process at the, in the majority of times. Because what makes a good early childhood education centre? First, I would say leadership. They've got to be led by somebody who's very passionate about the children first and foremost. And I've been in a huge number of centres now. Initially in my early career, I was steady in a few. But then in the last few years of that, while I was at law school, I was actually relieving. So I was going into centres all over the place. And I had this kind of bird's eye view of centres. And you can get private centres where they are profit driven. And the children are dished up the minimal food, the bare basics. And then you can get other private centres where they're not profit driven, they're quality driven. And the kids have got little buffets and they've got little carrots cut into happy faces. And like you, it's the love, it's the love that is in the centre. Yeah. And whether it's a business person or someone that really loves kids running it. And as a parent, how would you even identify which ones are good or not good early childhood education centre? Okay, so we can probably combine both those questions here. So if I was a parent and I was going to go into an early childhood centre, the first thing I would be looking for is the leadership. So do I feel welcome there? Where is the leader? Are they around? Are they hidden in an office somewhere? Are they out on the floor? Who is the captain of that ship? And do you have a good vibe with them? Do they make you feel welcome? Do they make your child feel acknowledged? Do they learn your name and then know your name? Do they learn your baby's name and then know your baby's name? Do they make eye contact with your baby? Do they smile at your baby? And very importantly, does your baby smile back? Because our children, I believe, have this inbuilt quality. It's almost like an instinct that they will pick up someone's vibes. Oh, absolutely. Totally. And when I'm working in the hospital and with the whole pandemic, we're in masks and all that. I can smile at a baby through the mask and they can't see the bottom half of my face and they will smile back if I'm yeah. smiling at them. Like they, they can read this much of just the top part totally. of your face and totally. just be like, oh yeah, this is like a good person. And I think what parents often underestimate is how much young children catch the vibe. They totally. really know. They can see everything. They might not know at a very deep level, but they know what's going on. They might not be able to articulate what they're thinking, but they feel it in their wairua. Absolutely. And one of the, one of the ways that I train, so I have Māori whakapapa and European whakapapa from a whole beautiful host of European countries. And one of the ways that Māori teach, and it probably is in a whole lot of other systems, and particularly Indigenous, I think it would still come through really strongly, but I can speak definitely for Māori. It is wairua ki te wairua. So it is the spirit to the spirit. And often Māori teachers that I've come across have this way of going, you know what, that baby's sad, just give that baby a cuddle. They don't want to be at mat time. Kate <laughs> the pie, give them a cuddle. But We'll go back to your question and finish that. Do the staff connect with your baby? So you can't walk into your baby going, I'm going to leave you here and this is this horrible big place. And, you know, you've got to go in, wow, look at this. Wow. <laughs> you've got to get them ready for it. Give them lots of positive messaging. Go in confident because they'll pick up your vibe as well. Go in to have a look around, have a little bit of a play. And then do the old undercover, watch some of the teachers with the other kids. Hear how the other teachers are talking to the children and how the children are interacting with each other. Are they playing nice? 
nicely? Are they using good language? Stop it. I don't like it. That's the classic. Stop it. I don't like it. That's not kind. Those kinds of things, because when you hear children parroting those sentences, they've been taught to do that, or that's what they've been modeled. Them being able to say things like, stop it. I don't like it, is them being able to show boundaries and expressing their wants and needs. Absolutely. And it's also to, a lot of it is about ratio and can the teachers get there to that child? I don't like to see children crying at all and there have been centres I've been in where there have just multiple children crying and Kitty is in the crying corner and I've got five or six criers and we're all like look at the book trying to distract their brain because sometimes children can get stuck in it they like an album that gets stuck on repeat they've forgotten why they're crying but they're just still crying because their emotions are really hyped up so are little criers being dealt with are they getting love can you see a teacher that's aware of them that they're crying and trying to because sometimes you have to be an octopus You have to like change this poo nappy because a baby in a poo nappy is going to come before a sulker if there's a sulker in the corner because I've got to get this poo off this bum. (laughs) Poo nappies are not my favourite part of pediatric medicine. (laughs) Oh, the amount of poo nappies I've done are in the thousands, like way more than an average parent. (laughs) But it keeps me grounded. Nothing like a poo nappy to bring back down the ego. (laughs) So I think in New Zealand, if you want funding as a parent to send your child to early childhood education, is it correct? It's 20 hours and they have to be three years or older. Is that right? Yes, you can get funding. So the government will subsidise your child. And that's really, in my opinion, part of the government's kind of initiative to help the economy and help now. We have often two parent families who are both working, but it's also too to support other parents who may want to get out and work or may just want to rest for their own mental well-being. Mm. But also, too, I do think it is a good acknowledgement of the value of early childhood education and that sometimes it can be expensive for families. If you're on minimum wage, you're looking at a good portion of that just going to childcare. That's three years of no funding for early childhood education, which I think is crazy for a lot of middle income or like lower income families. They're especially women, essentially, because women are often left with the uh, duties of being the primary caregiver and then impacting their ability to earn money long term, right? Because they're taking years out of work to look after children if they can't afford it. It's a sensitive subject. So I'll give my personal views on that. But I also want to acknowledge that this isn't always possible for every parent. Some parents absolutely have to go back, like they get their maternity leave and then they actually have to go back. So this is a luxury option. Okay, and you're very fortunate if you have this one. If not, full power to you, mama. You go and be the superwoman and your babies will be okay. Me personally, I didn't put my children into early childhood education until they could come home and say, mummy, this happened. Because then I was trying to read body language and sometimes that can come up with a baby that just won't settle and that you pick them up miserable, you drop them off and they're miserable and they can't actually tell you what's happened. I think that it's quite interesting, the whole, should we promote more early, early childhood education or like promoting staying at home? Because I guess the problem is when I think about like myself in healthcare as a doctor, I feel like most female doctors, when they get pregnant, they have their baby. It's like most of them are back working within a year, some within six months because of the pressures that we have from our jobs. Now, if that pressure wasn't there in terms of like our training and progression and that female role gap, or if you have a couple and they're both doctors, male, female, both doctors, on balance of probability, most of the time, it'll probably still be the woman that takes that time out to look after the baby. If we were supported to stay at home for longer, I think most women would be like, yeah, I'll stay at home. I want to look after my baby. It would be great to see the government do that. I think it'd be a wonderful investment. That being said, sometimes women are not ready for motherhood. And so sometimes they don't have the skills. They freak out. They might not be in a healthy home. And it's actually better for that baba to be out. So it's very individual. I think having the option, you know, you want to have your child in early childhood education early, great. You want to be at home with a child, also great. (laughs) Absolutely. And something that I would definitely like to see in the future and one of my 
you know, many ambitions is to help teenage girls in school with talks, chats, time around choosing a healthy partner and what a healthy family looks like. I think it's really interesting because, yes, we do need to help girls figure out how to have better relationships and find like the right partners. But I think sometimes what we're also missing is providing good mentorship and role modeling for boys. We're saying like, oh, girls, we need to be like safe in terms of making sure we have a buddy when we go out and making sure we cover our drinks. All those little things that we tell girls to do, not to walk home alone late at nighttime, which is great. We should do that. But at the same time, I really think that we don't have enough to help young boys be better. Oh, totally. And this is all through our society. Just the other day, I was watching The Mummy with Brendan Fraser and the old mummy that came out, I know, 15 years ago or something. And there was this beautiful girl lying chained up on the on the table and all of the men were running around to rescue her and she had all her makeup done and and I just thought, oh, I'm so over this damsel in distress stuff. <laughs> just the beautiful girl that's helpless that needs the men to save her. It's wonderful to have men that want to defend a woman, but that messaging that everyone else in that movie was this kind of hero male and she was just the pretty decorative. Decoration. And yeah. so I do worry a little bit around women still valuing themselves and our young men feeling adequate. I read somewhere that you had a lot of issues with your own family, marriage breakdown, and you went through some really tough times with your own mental health. But then you've come out on the other side through studying law degree, and now you're the Māori Environmental Commissioner. Can I ask you a little bit more about what that time was like for you in terms of your own mental health and how you got above it? Oh, education. It really is the key. And it sounds really cliche, but it is true. We're in the information age now. And so something I tell my children is if they have an issue or a thought or a feeling that keeps coming up for them, go online and Google it. What do you do when you feel X, Y, Z? And I said, and look for the articles that are written by psychologists or written by people who've had similar experiences and just get to know yourself, like being self-aware, being able to pick yourself apart and put yourself back together in a stronger way. And that was the key for me. I didn't have, I had a beautiful marriage. I had an awful divorce. And when the divorce was happening, I became resentful and I became toxic. It was really painful. And sitting in that hurt just took over. And hindsight is a beautiful thing. I wish that we had been able to be really diplomatic about it. Because we know that these days that divorce is really common in families in the modern age. I don't know the stats. It's higher than it was in the past. So on balance of probability, there's going to be a lot of kids who are in that situation where their parents separate or divorce. What kind of effects do you think that has on the kids? Ultimately, it hurts their heart because they are half and half. They are half mum and they are half dad. They have grown up in love with two people who've been together and to see those two people who are foundation come apart can be really scary and can be incredibly hurtful my divorce was out of court one of the one of the blessings actually of the New Zealand legal system is that family matters are kept private so you can't just go in and eat your popcorn while you're watching a couple having a divorce, which I think is really respectful and the right way to do that. But reading through the family law cases it was harrowing. So one of the things I did even before I divorced was I actually Googled the effect of divorce on children. And I read there that it can affect their schooling. It can affect their own personal relationships in the future. It can affect their health and their well-being. Kids can have all sorts of manifestations of poor mental health. For some kids, it's stock standard, anxiety, depression, low mood, not wanting to get out of bed, not wanting to go to school, having no energy for things that they normally have energy for. But for some kids, they actually manifest their mental health problems with the physical symptoms. You get these kids who come in with tummy pain is probably the most common that we get. And it's so heartbreaking because you talk to them and you obviously as a 
physical health doctor, I will see them and talk through about, is this physical symptom something I'm going to be worried about? Because is it an appendicitis? Is it diarrhea? That kind of thing. And then when you find out that it's none of those things and you can ask a little bit further about what's going on in the whanau, sometimes there's like a divorce happening or bullying. My heart goes out to you seeing that And for me, I can just imagine that happening too, because with my little ones in early childhood, I can see sometimes things, they'll be off, they'll just be off. And then you find out something's happening at home. I think one of the worst phrases that people will use with kids are, oh, kids are resilient. And they're resilient because they'll stay alive as much as they can, but they're not impenetrable. Let me tell you a story. And this is heartbreaking. Not every parent goes into life planning to have life happen and not be able to feed their kids. So we have to have some compassion there. And I want to tell you about children who don't have kai. I might cry, but I'll try not to. But I want to take you there. I'm in a centre and they have lunch boxes every day. And there is a little person in there who never has a lunch box. And the little person is soon, it's like something in their body biological clock goes off like they've had mat time or they've worked out that it's food time soon and you immediately see this change in behavior there's this kind of like pushing things over and they've become gruff all of a sudden and so I was relieving in the center and that little person had to sit down on the table while all the other little kids have their lunch boxes while the, the teachers are away cooking some noodles in the kitchen that they're going to bring back for this baby. Now, see, I'm going to own centers one day. I'm going to open them. If that was me, that baby has never not got a lunchbox. That baby is, teachers are making that baby a lunchbox and putting it in that bag every single day. And we're talking to mum and dad at home and saying, how can we help? So anyway, back to the story. (laughs) So baby is sitting at the table and baby is literally watching these babies pulling out their strawberries and their little rolled up luncheons and their carrot sticks. And I can just feel it. They're so embarrassed and they're so envious. And in that moment, their world just shrinks in on them. And they don't understand that their family can't afford it. They don't understand why that's happening to them, why they are the one with nothing. They are just the ones with nothing. And anyone that can donate to lunches in schools or Kapai Kai or any of that, know that you are changing that entire baby's life because the other kids see that too. The other kids sit there and see, oh, they don't have anything. And the older they get, the more they get teased. Children don't always compute and think, okay, let's be kind here. And some centers as well will have a very strict no sharing because of allergies and things like that. I uh, I really appreciate what the government is doing, putting food in schools. But I would also encourage parents who can afford to send your children to school with lunch not to take advantage of the free lunches. Leave them for children that actually need them. I had grown up with parents. I always had lunch in my lunchbox, always. So I'm speaking from a privileged position and I have to acknowledge that in terms of how I grew up. My father worked incredibly hard. I hardly saw him because he was gone before I woke up and often not home until late in the evening. And he'd come home and his hands were all dirty and he'd have his overalls on and he'd been in the trenches. So I I watched my own parents build from very little. I didn't let them know the true extent of my homelessness because I was embarrassed. And I also didn't want to stress them out and that I felt like they'd given me enough. And I did hide a lot of it for a lot of the time. Part of that was because I believe, I never was diagnosed, but I believe I had situational depression. That is hard Um, because I also had another corridor with Mike King on my podcast about his work in Gumboot Friday. And one of the biggest things that he said was about how for Rangitaki for um, adolescents is that a lot of these kids who are depressed and suicidal is that they don't want to tell their parents because they don't want their parents to worry because the parents gave them so much. And it's interesting was it's funny right because then when it's us and we're the adults we still have that same feeling it's that we don't want our parents to know but then also when you're a 
I guess for you, you're a parent. I'm not a parent, but when you're a parent, you want your kids to tell you. <laughs> but they're probably thinking totally. the same thing: is that oh, my parents gave me everything. I don't want them to be upset or disappointed. Totally, and I totally get what you're saying because. With my kids now, the most treasured thing that I have with my children is my relationship with them. And what I always try and work on is, can they tell me anything? There have been times where I've been driving in the car and my knuckles have gone white on the steering wheel because they're telling me something. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh. I had this wonderful parenting tip when I was a really young mum. And it said, if your children tell you something that makes you just want to have a heart attack, don't overreact. Just go, okay, babe, I love you. Thank you for telling me. That's good. That's awesome. And then go into the room and have the breakdown. But you want to make sure that you keep the communication open because if you freak out at the little things, there's no way they'll tell you the big things. And yeah, I did want to hide it from my parents and I hid it from my followers as well. One of the worst nights, it was after the separation of marital property, like when that eventually was finally separated, I wasn't ready for it. So I became a bit of a transient and was going between homes and opportunities and jobs and situations. In retrospect, I was in shock and all of my worldly possessions that were in my home were all put into storage in one day. And I just remember that storage feeling like it was the graveyard of my old life, like I grew up hearing about the elephant graveyard and how is where all the elephants went to went to die and the storage unit was where my beautiful life had gone to die it was really painful going back there and I paid so much money just to keep it and it was I kind of kept it there for two years in the hope that I'd get another home and I'd be able to bring it all out and it was heart-wrenching going back there every now and again when I'd circle back to Rotorua watching my children's clothes get too little for them and I've still got some of their their books and stuff that were their favorite books and I, I had to sell a lot of my possessions as well I'm selling the microwave at cash converters and I'm selling the tv because um, it's really hard because I think in the media people are all like oh people are on the benefit this they're just lazy that blah 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 all this kind of stuff how easy or how hard is it to get on your own two feet when you're in that situation when you're basically in poverty rock bottom I had help and I don't think anybody can do it without help. And that is either help from someone that gives you advice, help from someone that just sits down and talks with you and listens to you, help from someone that just throws you a few dollars and goes, here you go, I've got you with this. I was very fortunate because I already had early childhood qualifications, so I was able to base myself in Tokoroa. I went there on the promise of being able to rent with somebody, which fell through. And the reason I needed someone to rent with was because I had been in a freehold home and I knew that I was at the back of the line. I was the bottom of the list in terms of, I was still a single mum, but I didn't have my children with me. I was single. I hadn't kept a job in one place. I hadn't lived in one place for a long time. Like all of those questions that they ask you, I just couldn't fill them out. Because how do you um, get a job if you can't get a home, but you also can't get a home because you can't get a job? <laughs> I know. And it's this kind of really horrible cycle. So what happened was, so give you the kind of timeline. So I move out of my family home and move in with a friend in Tokoroa. Quite quickly, I got offered a job up in Auckland with sea cleaners because they'd already seen my environmental work. And so they offered me a job. And so I moved up there and I moved in with a friend there who was just amazing. He was just awesome, really beautiful, safe friend and very kind, very loving and very caring. I put out a message on Facebook and said, okay, I need to move to Auckland. Has anybody got a room? And this person messaged and I was like, let's go there. And so I was working up in Auckland on the boats and that's when my following really picked up because I was doing lives every morning from wherever we were. We'd go out in the Waitemata Harbour on this great boat and I loved it. It was really an adventure. I missed my kids desperately and I'd, I'd go to sleep and fall asleep thinking of them and wake up missing them. But during the day, I had to put them 
to the side of my thoughts because I wasn't going to be able to function if I didn't, if I just stayed in that headspace of missing and sad. So I had to focus on something else. And so I focused on my environmental work because I felt like that was fulfilling, but also it kept me in contact with other people. It gave me a sense of self-worth because I had value to Papa Tuanuku, even if I didn't have financial value. Just me picking up rubbish yeah. was helping the world. You I know? love the word Papa Tuanuku. Like, admittedly, I first heard the word on an Air New Zealand, the flight safety thing, and I just thought... Isn't that just one of the most beautiful words in the world? Papatuanuku. It's the Māori equivalent of Mother Earth, isn't it? It is. And yeah, you get Papa Matcha over in South, South America. Yeah. There's lots of different words. If you like this podcast and want to stay updated on the newest content, follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Revolving Door Syndrome. Send us a DM or leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. I want to ask you a bit more about your environmental work. So you've just finished law school, is that right? And you've passed the bar yes. and all that. Are you going to work as a lawyer as well? Or is it mainly your work as the Māori Environmental Commissioner? First thing I did when I finished was start work for the Māori Climate Change Commission. So the Māori Climate Commissioner, Donna Awatere Huata, I had met her once beforehand in Auckland. I'd actually walked up to her because I knew she was the Climate Commissioner and introduced myself. She had seen some of my work. She'd seen in particular a video I did of pulling rubbish out of a river, which got a lot of attention and it was got a lot of attention in America as well. And I had a writer from the Discovery Channel get in touch and we developed this beautiful friendship. I actually do call her my earth mama. Her name is Robina Towers and she's just divine and she has a life that I would love to live. She's spent her life traveling around the world, telling stories and celebrating all of the beautiful animals. I think she's almost like the female equivalent of David Attenborough, but she's been the writer and she's incredible, very strong, very, oh, she's given me some wonderful advice. That video created a lot of kind of knock-on effects that were really good. LinkedIn, the Global Goodwill Ambassadors, They've got a program that kind of comes off LinkedIn and I was nominated for that Global Goodwill Ambassadorship and accepted for that. So All during law school? No, after. this is during homelessness. Oh, during homelessness. <laughs> oh, so no, I went to law school. I see. Yeah, no, this is before I went to law school. This is while I was up in Auckland. And so homelessness for me, ultimately there were times where I spent a night in the car and but I was very fortunate because I was able to crash at people's houses literally my whole soul crashed there I, I did really keep this front up to the world and have all of this stuff going on behind me at the same time and I just had to fake it until I made it my first job was with Donna Awatere Huata. she approached me and she said okay so when you come out of law school what are you going to do and I said, well, I'd really like to do some environmental work. And she said, let's chat. So we chatted and I spent some time actually with her. And then she got to know me a little bit more and she got to see a little bit more of what I've done. And the clincher for her was when she visited me at my home. And oh, so you have a home now. <laughs> Oh yeah, she saw. Yeah, <laughs> she saw. She saw the books that I had, and she saw my computer screen, and she saw all of the tabs that I had open on legal stuff about the environment. And she was like, "Okay, I think I've got a different role for you." And she said, "You know what? I thought maybe you would take time to grow into it, but I can see you're actually ready." So Donna is the Maori Climate Commissioner. And in that office, she's appointed me the Māori Environment Commissioner. So it's kind of a dual role. It's really important that I do a good job of being the first. So for me, that means building the capacity of the commission, setting up some funding sources so that we can empower others and so that I can get to places where I need to get to to be able to help because I've had a lot of people who, I, and I welcome this, 
have got in contact with me and told me about issues that they're having problems with in their own areas. For example, there is a group in Taupo who are having the land in front of their marae constantly being washed away because of the high lake levels, which comes into the resource consenting to keep those levels high. And so they've approached me because every one of the times that they've asked the authorities about them, they haven't been heard. There's a group down at Mount Messenger. There's a, a bypass going through there and they've looked at the options that have been taken for that and the option has actually been to bring in a foreign company to create this road which is only going to add minimal amount of time to the journey but is actually going through a big ancient forest. There have been issues with people who are at Lake Horofenua in Levin. It's just one of the most polluted lakes in the world and a child could drink from it and they would die. And so I'm getting an influx now of people who have struggled for a long time to be heard. And now I'm in a position where I can actually be a voice for them. So for me, it's very much about getting the capacity of that role, making relationships with the politicians and policymakers, the Ministry of Environment, for example, I've just been doing some work with them to create hopefully what will be an app that helps to unite kaitiaki around the motu. So none of my previous work stops. None of the other kind of advocacy that I've done or the cleaning up that I've done stops. I've got a charity that I've just set up called Clean Out Earth New Zealand or aka Clean New Zealand. So finally, after all of the years of just fantasizing about it in my capacity as a lawyer now, I can write that up myself and know that I've got all of the right bits in there and I don't need to go and check it with a lawyer. I can just check and it myself. And the six minutely. Yeah, I can just do it for free for myself. That's really really helped. So that's something I want to be able to offer others too, is to help them set up charities for their kaupapa. I don't want to limit myself by saying I only do this. I do cleaning up with people. I do community events with people. I do cleaning up on my own on just random cleanups. But what I'm doing now is I'm making them more sustainable. So I used to just go out and find something and turn on my camera on live and just go live and clean it up or talk about it. But now I have the capacity to actually go to like the lotteries board or other funding sources, get some funds in and then we can do a cleanup and we can have a picnic afterwards. So we can do a cleanup and I can have some prizes to give out to the little kids. We can just give it a bit more substance. And I'm also a qualified journalist. So it, no, I have done so many things along the a way. Lot of things. I'm kind of Yeah, I'm always studying. <laughs> Your and skin looks far too good for somebody who's done all those things. <laughs> That's on purpose. <laughs> Girl, what is your secret? <laughs> Botox? I'm not, I'm like, Botox. Botox is the shizness. Okay. And I'm not even going to hide it because I don't know oh, why hide it. I'm going to own it. It's great. There's some people that say my face is going to melt off when I hit 70, but so be it. I'll just stick it back ah, up with sticky tape. Who needs good skin when they're 70, right? <laughs> well, me. <laughs> yeah, because you'll probably still, but, be, still be some sort of commissioner of some sort. You might be prime minister. Who knows? <laughs> I've actually had, I had my first ever apartment in Rotorua, right? And there was a possum that would come to the window. And I was like, wow, you're cute. I'm going to learn a bit more about you. So I threw an apple out onto the roof. The next night it was back and back and just kept coming back. He was ferocious. And I know it was a him because I saw as he was climbing up my window, (laughs) it was a him. They are ferocious and they will decimate our native forests if they're not controlled. It's very hard to get up into the high country and trap them at the rate that they breed. Because the 1080 is that used as poison for the... 1080 um, is used as poison. It's dropped as poison. And so I've actually been in a a hui about 1080 where there were representatives of doc and trappers and hunters and all of them have something really valuable to say. Like for hunting, right, it poisons those animals too. And then that takes their food source 
for trappers, they need more resources. Personally, I'd like to see 1080 eliminated to not see us need 1080. And I'd like more resources to be going into businesses that can trap these possums down. I have to be so delicate about this. I think that when we talk about like environment, it's always tricky because there's so many aspects to environment. There's sustainability, there's our pollution, there's carbon emissions. And to think about like housing and stuff, for example, we've just had the biggest flood in Auckland in, I don't know, it was like a one in a hundred years like situation in Auckland. So many people have lost their homes, lost everything. And there's all these arguments going on right now. It's it's because we didn't get our stormwater sorted. But I'm like, even if we had the best stormwater situation, I think it was so much water that we would have flooded anyway. Maybe not as bad, but we probably would have flooded anyway. And then there's people talking about, we should make the city more spongy, take advantage of our volcanic soil and have more trees. But then we also need to build houses for people and infrastructure in terms of grey water and sewerage for more people. (laughs) It feels like every decision that you make has both a positive and negative environmental impact. Absolutely. And it is this really difficult balancing game and ultimately there's a whole lot of contributing factors with that just saying climate change is controversial because we've still got people who are in climate change deniers who are saying things like our weather it's all cloud seeding and so we've got that voice and then we've got scientists from America who've worked on climate modelling for years and are literally chaining themselves to parliament buildings because they're like you guys need to listen to the science and we've got all of the evidence here and so we've Just that in itself creates such mayhem. One of the funniest things I saw to try and bring some kind of lighthearted reason to it was this picture of underwear hanging on the line. And in the 1900s, it was great big bloomers. And then it goes down to like boxer shorts and then pants and then G-strings and then these tiny little bits of tooth floss. And it's like, there's the evidence for climate change right there. We're just, we're wearing less. (laughs) But on a serious note, we are seeing increased weather events around the world. We're seeing extreme events. Australia's on fire one year. It's flooding the next. Bangladesh is underwater Auckland is underwater but I guess at the end of the day is like what can we actually do about it because there's policies out there for example there was that electric vehicle rebate for example you get a certain amount of money back if you buy a brand new electric vehicle or hybrid or you import one from overseas you get that rebate which sounded like really good at the time but to me it felt okay we're just funding a whole bunch of people's teslas who were probably going to buy those cars anyway and people will say oh but then like those people will sell their cars and introduce more cars into new zealand and i'm like okay but where did those lithium batteries come from and what was the carbon emissions required to one build that car and get that car here to new zealand and what electricity are we creating to charge those electric batteries. Exactly. If we all overnight snapped our fingers and had electric vehicles, we'd be burning more coal because we don't have the green energy generation here yet to sustain an entire fleet. So there's levels of this and we can go really deep and really philosophical. At that level, we're talking about New Zealand's contribution to admissions on a global scale and where the other emissions are coming from, which are the developing countries. And those are places like China and India. Those people have as much right to food and shelter and warmth and health care as we do. And to set up those systems is development. And that is going to create more emissions. Those conversations need to be had. I was with Mike Smith one time at a marae years before I did a bit more in-depth looking at it and learning when I was just this kind of fresh green environmentalist that was just going to pick up rubbish until the world was all healed. And I was saying, oh, we all just need to be self-sustaining. We all just need to be self-sustaining. And he said, if you're the only light on on the hill, where do you think everyone else is going to come? And he said, it's either all of us or or it's none of us. And so we have a system right now that has massive investment in emission production. We are carbon emitters. Our agricultural system emits huge carbon. Our industries emit huge carbon. So, you know, what the RMA is in New Zealand anyway, is being replaced by three other pieces of legislation. One of those is the Climate Change Adaption Act. 
And that's about how we deal with the changes that we're seeing and can adapt with the most ease to the changes that we're going to be seeing. For example, how we're going to manage our retreat back from the ocean levels coming up. It is so complex and there are so many issues. But I suppose like so, one of the arguments, right, is that if we as a country, for example, New Zealand just sank into the ocean and we all disappeared, the impact of that on the total like global emissions would be negligible. Minimal. Mm. It would be minimal. I saw a study where it said it would be three weeks. We'd add three weeks to the time where we'd actually hit yeah. the, um, the target. And that's where we have to go philosophical again because – if New Zealand, and this is my hope, if New Zealand can do our very best and we can go from a country in the situation we are in now to a country that can fulfill its commitments to the Paris Agreement and we can fulfill our own individual challenge of reducing our carbon footprint as much as possible, then we have a leg to stand on when we speak internationally. It's a bit like you getting me on here tonight, right? I'm on here because you saw an article where it said I went from homeless to lawyer. So that creates interest. And on the world stage, maybe New Zealand can be the country that went from emitting to not. And there are technologies out there. It's a complicated issue, but it is not so complicated that it cannot be solved. And for example, I met a very wealthy philanthropist a little while ago at the International Youth Silent Film Festival. He runs that and I was the MC. And I had just been appointed the Māori Environment Commissioner. And he said, oh, that's great. I'm actually carbon negative. And I was like, wow, really? What does that mean? And he goes, oh, all my carbon, it just gets sucked in by this company and then they put it into the ground and it like makes diamonds. <laughs> and I'm like, okay. <laughs> Interesting. That sounds cool. But that's, he had, he was doing that. So every plane ticket that he had, he would put investment into this company and he would just, he could do that, right? Because he was a philanthropist. He could do that. For us other humans without that kind of resource, we can plant a garden. We can grow some of our own food really locally. Start with some potatoes. I've got potatoes in. Put some potatoes in. I guess the tricky in. thing is that the philanthropists, like their carbon emissions are going to be wildly greater than like the average New Zealander and as well as the average human on earth, right? There's going to be all over the place. So it just part of me is a little bit a little bit pessimistic about those sorts of ideas because there are some things that I question a little bit. For example, some businesses that choose to offset carbon emissions oh, and yeah. things like that. And a there lot we of, go. And That's a lot of that, and scheme. a lot of that is growing pine trees. But the problem with pine trees is that in New Zealand is that they're non-native and they can actually destroy natural habitats within New Zealand because there are some places I think in New Zealand their carbon emission trading scheme is specifically with like native forest, which I think is great because native forest creates native habitat for our native animals, whereas pine trees don't. And they, I think they also destroy the soil as well. So I just find it really tricky with like environmental stuff because there's always this like underlying negative effect. Not always, but often. I think there is always going to be arguments for and against. And Sometimes it's the best of a bad situation. For example, with pine trees, I've heard both of those arguments too. Native is the premium because those tōtara will stay up for much longer than pine trees will. They just have a longer lifespan. And so the ability for them to absorb carbon is better. They take a lot longer to grow. And one of the wonderful suggestions that's come from Donna, Donna Awaterehuata, is the ability for those pines to become almost like a nursery for natives. So you can actually get natives coming up underneath them. Like we've got an example here with the redwood forest. So the redwood, the Californian redwood forest here has got this beautiful native forest underneath. There's ways and means around it. And I think sometimes it's about finding the best of a bad situation. We don't have a lot of time. There is this kind of closing window. So one of the things that we've got are what we call feedback loops. For example, the easiest one is the melting ice sheets. So the ice reflects the sun and as it melts, that 
reflection is less because it's then being absorbed by the darker ocean water. So then the ocean water is warming and you've got a feedback loop happening of the ice melting, the ocean warming, the sun. Another feedback loop is happening with the methane over in places like Siberia where the permafrost is melting. And so we've got this permafrost melting, methane in huge amounts is being released from that permafrost and that's creating more melting. You know, so it's ultimately we've got these kind of loops and more of them are going to pop up the further along we go in the timeline here. And so we do need to focus on solutions. That's my big thing. So especially as a commissioner, what I'm looking at and what I want to be able to do is to actually look at the new technologies that are coming in and what they can do for marine, marine rubbish, for example. The Great Pacific Garbage Patch is the prime example. This beautiful 19-year-old, he was 19 when he created it, but he created essentially a system that's gone out into the Pacific Ocean now and has become this massive project of cleaning up the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. And that is just from the dream of a 19-year-old. So how many more 16, 17, how many more nine-year-olds have got the dream that is actually going to be the solution to biggest And if we issues. invest in children early, maybe we'll get more bright minds. And if we invest more in technology and education, imagine all the things that we could achieve. Absolutely. Investing in them, caring for their education, nurturing their confidence, giving them healthy homes, healthy emotionally, socially, physically, mentally. That's all going to help. The thing that helped me ultimately was becoming self-aware, understanding the situations that I'd been in, surrounding myself with really good, healthy, supportive, happy people, and then going from there. I got onto law school. I stayed on the path. There were some nights you don't sleep for four or five days, but get onto a path and then just stay the course. Okay, one last question. What is your favourite book you've read of all time? Oh, The Magic Faraway Tree. My mum used to read it to me when I was a little girl and it was by Enid Blyton and it was so beautiful. It was in this really old kind of 1950s language so everything was very proper and the children did their chores and my mother read it with the inflections and the characters and essentially it's about some children who visit an enchanted forest and they climb up this magical big tree and all up the tree live wonderful fairy folk and at the top of the tree is this kind of revolving other universe like a parallel universe and every now and again a new land comes to the top of the tree and they were like the land of gifts the land of eat what you want the land of toys and (laughs) so for a kid I was like oh yeah that was my little fantasy getaway when I was a kid and really created imagination for me yeah so it was that and I've read it to my children and many children that I love I've read that story to them yeah amazing Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Oh, you're so welcome. It was fun. I feel like I didn't get to pick your brains enough, though. (laughs) Revolving Door Syndrome acknowledges Māori as tangata whenua and to titi to your Waitangi partners in Aotearoa, New Zealand. We recognise the inequities and challenges faced by Indigenous and vulnerable groups and acknowledge our duty to work towards closing the gap. Thank you.